So good morning again. Um, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Don Teodoro. I am here because Pastor Chris and Erica and Lydia are back in Ohio um, with uh, Chris's dad, who as some of you know is uh, both, actually both his parents have health issues that they are working on back there. Um, the last time I spoke, I'm, I'm getting reverberation, I'm thinking. Are you guys hearing it down there too? Um, I don't know that there's anything I can do it from this end, but uh, hopefully you can. Um, last time I spoke was a very exciting Sunday five years ago yesterday. And that was when uh, Chris and family were traveling out from Ohio uh, to serve as pastor here. So next Sunday, uh, when Chris will be back, uh, will be his fifth anniversary serving with us at Bible Chapel. So praise God for that. Um, our text today will be from Luke chapter 15. Um, however, before I read it, I'd like to refresh our memories by giving a little bit of um, history and the background of the book of Luke. Um, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts were, uh, were not named, the author was not named as Luke but there's a lot of evidence and I don't think there's much disagreement that Luke actually wrote both of those books. Um, he wrote them around AD 62, roughly 30 years after Christ. And um, he wrote the book of Luke first and the book of Acts shortly thereafter. Um, both books were addressed to an unknown person named Theophilus. Um, and Luke referred to him as most excellent. We see this in the first few verses of both books. And Luke also did not know Jesus personally, um, so he was not an eyewitness to Jesus' life and his ministry. He says he wrote the book because he wanted to give Theophilus an orderly account so that he, Theophilus, could be certain about the things that he had been taught. Luke was a physician, so I'm guessing he was somewhat organized and was probably a good candidate to be writing an order, orderly account for Theophilus. Um, chapter 15 records three stories that Jesus told, three parables. The Webster Dictionary defines a parable as a usually short, fictitious story that illustrates a moral attitude or a religious principle. The story is usually a, a real-life situation that the audience can relate to. Parables normally teach one basic lesson, but some, like Matthew 13, teach a more complex uh, message, and that's the parable of the sower. In Jesus' parables, it's typically the end of the story that's most important, the last person, the last action, or the last saying. In Matthew 13, Jesus explains that he uses parables to communicate truth to those who believe in him, but he also hides the truth from those who refuse to believe in him. If you are living according to God's will, you don't need to worry about um, missing the hidden, uh, some hidden message that Jesus is trying to teach us. There's no need to look for these messages um, because he makes it plain to his hearers. And we also don't need to be look for a hidden meaning in each and every word in a parable. They're, they're a story, a made-up story to teach a point. 
An Old Testament example um, that you're probably familiar with is in 2 Samuel chapter 1, excuse me, chapter 12. It's the story of God sending the prophet Nathan to King David after David uh, committed adultery with Bathsheba and then had her husband killed. Nathan went to the king and told him a story, a parable about a rich man who had many flocks and many herds and a poor man who only had one little lamb. And there's indication that that little lamb may have been a pet lamb of the families. When the rich man wanted to prepare a meal for a traveler, he took the poor man's lamb and fed that, the traveler with that rather than his many lambs. The author of 2 Samuel, who we don't know who that is either, tells us that after David heard the story, quote, David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. Nathan said to King David, you are the man. The parable relates David's adultery and murder with the rich man taking the poor man's lamb. In this parable that God had Nathan deliver to David, that broke David and brought him to repentance. Jesus, used a, Jesus was a great storyteller and often used the parable method of storytelling in his ministry for the same reason, to bring his hearers to repentance. Luke 15 contains three parables, with the last one containing two stories. And it does not appear that it's just a coincidence that these three parables were lumped together. The main point of all three parables is Jesus' desire to recover lost people. This is why Jesus is meeting with and eating with sinners. They are lost, and he wants to recover them. The parable of the lost son is about one son who was lost outside the house and one son that was lost inside the house. The parables of the prodigal son and the lost coin only occur in Luke's Gospels. And it's pretty, pretty easy to see some of the similarities in the stories. Um, someone is lost. Someone or something is lost. We have the lost uh, sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. In each story, the person who was lost gets it back. Each story ends with rejoicing and celebration. However, there is what appears to be a glaring difference between the first two and the third parable. In the first two, someone goes out and diligently seeks for that which was lost. In the third parable, no one searches for the lost son. Why is that? Should someone have been looking for him? And if so, whose responsibility was that to look for him? We're going to try to answer these questions as we get further on. Rather than reading them, I will just give a quick summary of the first two parables, because we're not going to be studying them this morning, but they are in Luke chapter 15. The first parable is the one about the lost sheep. Matthew also records it in Matthew 18. It's the story that Jesus tells of the shepherd who lost one sheep, left 99 where they were, and went to great lengths to find the lost one. And when he finds it, he calls his friends together to rejoice with him. Jesus ends the story by equating the rejoicing over one lost sheep with the rejoicing over one sinner who repents. In the second parable about the lost coin, it's a story of that uh, 
a woman who lost one of her ten coins and also went to great lengths to find it. And again, Jesus ends with the saying, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner that repents. We're going to read Luke chapter uh, 15. We're going to start with verse 1 and 2, and then we'll skip to verse 11. Verse 1 and 2. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawn near to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Then we have verses 3 through 10, which are the stories of the lost sheep and the lost coin. So now we're in verse 11 of chapter 15. This is the parable of the prodigal son. And he said, There is a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything... A severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough to eat? And I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer to be worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they begin to celebrate. I'm sure many of you are familiar with these three parables, especially this story of the prodigal son. You may have read it numerous times, you may have heard it in many sermons, and you may have actually studied it in great detail. But chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, sets the stage for the rest of the chapter by telling us who was in the audience that Jesus was speaking to. Verse 1 says that the tax collectors and sinners who knew they were sinners, were there because they wanted to hear what Jesus had to say. Verse 2 leaves us with the impression that the Pharisees and scribes, the teachers of the law, were only there because they somehow felt like they were better than the sinners. And they were angry and complaining that Jesus was hanging out and actually eating with sinners. This is the audience that Jesus was addressing. This third parable is called, commonly called the parable of the prodigal son. I thought for a long time that it should be titled the parable of the forgiving father because that's what I see in the picture so much is that father who forgives these kids 
It's this parable that I would like to focus on today. However, it's not the younger son, the prodigal, that we'll be focusing on. Today, we're going to be talking about the older son, the older brother. Before we read about the older brother in the second part of the story, let's look at a few of the things that we've learned in the first part. Under normal conditions, an estate would not have been divided until after the father had died. Here we see the younger brother wanted his share early. There's no indication that the older brother objected to getting his share at that time either. How many of us fathers would think it wise to grant our kids a request like that when we had a whole family to take care of? Put yourself in the ancient world where the story takes place. This is a world where parents, especially fathers, are highly reverenced. It would have been an equivalent for one of our sons saying, Dad, I can't even wait till you die. Give me a third of everything I have right now. Yet his father obliged. He did what he was asked. Because verse 12 says, and he divided his property between them, we probably need to assume that at the same time, the younger son got his share, the older son got his share also. Deuteronomy 21, 17 tells us that in the Jewish society, upon the death of the father, the oldest son gets twice as much as any of his other siblings, not just land, but twice as much of everything. Well, this story only has two sons. So using simple numbers, if the, the estate was worth um, $900, the older brother would receive 600 and the younger brother would see, receive 300. And the father would have been left with zero. Normally he would be dead and not need anything. But in this story, he would have to live off the older brother. Under a normal situation, the older brother receives the most because he is now the head of the family and has all the responsibility of leading the family after the death of his father. We read how the, we read how the story goes. The younger, brother, excuse me, the younger son left home, wasted his inheritance on sinful living, ran out of money, got hungry, got a very humiliating job feeding pigs. Remember, pigs in that society were unclean. Then it says, he came to himself. By that I take it, it means it finally sunk in. He had made a huge mistake and wanted to repent and go back home and be a servant. Before he got home, though, to give his repentance speech that he had practiced, um, it says, he, who was his father, who was obviously waiting and looking for him, ran out to meet him and embraced him and kissed him. Before the son could even finish his speech, the father called the servants to get the best robe, ring, and shoes, none of which a servant would have been given. Asked him to kill the fattened calf and start the celebration. His son was dead and is now alive. Now with that background, let's read the second half of the parable, starting in verse 25. Now his older brother was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. 
But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. And he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you. I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, he has devoured your property with prostitutes. You killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So now let's look at a few obvious things that Jesus had to say in this story about the older brother. The older brother was in the field. Presumably he was working like all good sons should be doing, not like his younger brother. He hears music and dancing and asks the servant what's going on. The servant tells him his younger brother came home and what his father had done. He gets angry and refuses to go into the celebration. His father comes out and tries to convince him to celebrate his brother's return. Then in what appears to be a very humiliating, belligerent, and disrespectful voice, he lectures his father by saying, Look, I'm the good son that stayed home and served you. I never disobeyed you. I didn't waste your money on prostitutes like your other son. I did what I was told. Then he tells his father that he's the one that deserves the fattened calf and the celebration, not his sinning younger brother. The father says, all that is mine and yours. This was probably literally true because the father of the story had already divided his estate. The older brother reminds me of a book I read many years ago. I was, re was reading it because I was teaching uh, middle school, Sunday school. The book was about a common misconception that when kids leave home and go off to college or the military or work or just for whatever reason they move out, they often leave the faith and the church also. But the author of the book was saying this idea is not correct. The author was saying that the kids actually mentally check out in middle or high school. They just stayed around and warmed the pews and tried to look like a good Christian at church until they could move out and be away from home on their own. I think this may have been the case for the older brother. A churchgoer that knows all the answers can talk like a Christian, appears good on the outside, but Jesus is really not Lord of his life. I've actually had about a month to prepare for today. It may not sound like it, but Chris gave me a month here, uh, which is nice because it takes me a long time to prepare for a sermon. I actually do not know how Chris, or any pastor for that matter, comes up with a sermon every week. So I, um, I was, let's see. So I was talking to Chris a couple weeks ago, actually, that I was going to be talking about chapter uh, 15 of Luke and that I wanted to focus on the older brother. Well, Chris, off the top of his head, says, suggested I read The Prodigal God by Tim Keller uh, to learn more about the older brother. So I bought the book, and it has been a huge help. Uh, some of the thoughts I'm sharing, going to be sharing today originated in that book, and I would recommend that book to any of you guys young or not so young. Um, so now we're going to get a little deeper into this parable. Although I think most of the time when we read the passage or hear a sermon on it, 
uh, we think of the son that took his dad's money, left home, realized that the grass was not actually greener someplace else, and returned home when he ran out of money. But as we read the story, we saw that the story had three characters, a younger son, a father, and an older son. I will be using two terms often a day, younger brother and older brother. The terms have nothing to do with age or birth order or gender, but everything to do with the type of sinners they represent in this parable. The son that the prodigal is named after is the younger son, the prodigal son. Although prodigal is not a biblical word, it's been inserted in most Bibles as a title for the story. Webster's first definition for prodigal is exceedingly or recklessly wasteful. This definition probably fits the younger son pretty well. But there's also a second definition for the word prodigal, and that's extremely generous. This may be where Pastor Keller got the title for his book, The Prodigal God. But how should we define the other son, the older son? I want to read verses 25 through 32 of Luke 15 again about the older son, now that we've had a little bit of background about him. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when, his young, when his, the son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this year brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. We know how the younger brother's story ends with a celebration. He was dead and is now alive. He was lost and now found. Notice how the older brother's story ends. It doesn't really end. It just quits. Jesus does not tell us the fate of the older brother. When I started studying about the older brother, I started seeing myself as, as the older brother. It brought back a not-so-fond memory from 53 years ago. Let me give you some background. I started college in 1968, and like many 18-year-old college freshmen, we thought we knew everything. We would sit around the dorm and have these philosophical discussions about the world's problems. And every error has world's problems. But I'm going to recount some of these for you that was going on in our minds at the time. Many of you will remember the 60s and 70s when I grew up, when many of you grew up also. In 1963, President Kennedy was assassinated. We all knew where we were when, that, when we got the news of that. The Vietnam War officially started in 65 and went to 75 for 10 years. 
every guy 18 years old and older was concerned about being drafted. It was on the back of his mind all the time. Race riots were in major cities in the 60s and 70s as the country was working its way out of the horrible Jim Crow laws. Martin Luther King was assassinated in April of 68. Two months later, I'm sorry. Two months later, Senator Kennedy was assassinated. But then we had some really good news, some exciting news. Apollo 11 landed the astronauts on the moon. But also in 69 was the first draft lottery. Um, that was a, a very strange time. I was in the first lottery and many of you were also in the dorm. Uh, one of the guys had a little TV in his room. You know, nobody had computers or TVs or stuff like that, but this one guy had this little dinky TV. He brought it out in the lounge and set it on the table, and we all huddled around that TV to watch what appeared to be like a, a bingo game with a guy pulling these balls out of this canister with a name on it from 1 to 365 or 366, whatever. And um, that... Uh, that matched up with your birthday. January 1st was number one. We all threw a dollar in a hat, and whoever got the lowest number was the one who got the money in the hat. Um, but then uh, Apollo 13 happened in 1970, and that was, I mean, it was a, a very scary time, but it was a really cool time, too. Um, if you don't remember Apollo 13, it was on its way to the moon. It was had been traveling for two days. And then there was an explosion. Oxygen tank exploded before they got there. And we didn't know if they were coming back. They were still all alive. But what was neat about it was, with all the race stuff going on around the world, we would see video clips on TV, I'm sure many of you remember it, of people all over the world praying for our astronauts to get back. It's like it, it put a calm over the world. Short story is they made it back. As for climate change, uh, well, nobody was concerned about global warming then. The concern was the coming ice age. We thought we were gonna all freeze. Um, and then in 73, the horrible Roe versus Wade decision came and abortion became legal in all 50 states.
And last but not least, we discussed religion. As you can see, we had many worldly ills to, to be discussing and debating, and some of us thought we knew more than others. Everyone knew that I went to church. They knew that I didn't do some of the things that the other kids did. But when we talked about religion, apparently I sounded like I knew more than others. However, unlike the Pharisees and the scribes, I knew almost nothing about the Bible or Christianity. If someone had mentioned a Bible verse, I probably would not have recognized the name of the book. If someone had said, look at Genesis XYZ, I really doubt that I would have known where to find Genesis. Although we were supposed to have a Bible in the home, we were not supposed to read it because we were told that we didn't have the training to understand it. I don't ever remember opening a Bible growing up. And prayer consisted of reciting memorized prayers that somebody else wrote and reciting them over and over again. But like the Pharisees and scribes, I was raised in a denominational church, and we were at church every time the doors were open. We were just really good churchgoers. In those discussions about religion, a good friend of mine told me that I had a holier-than-thou attitude. That just really did a number on me. I'll never forget it. It's not something that I would have ever wanted to portray, but obviously my attitude did. If we read this passage and center our attention on the younger brother, the prodigal son, we will miss a large part of the message Jesus is telling us. Both brothers are alienated from God. However, they are on opposite ends of the spectrum on how they can be separated from God. The younger brother didn't see a need for God. The older brother was earning his way to heaven by being good and following the rules. There are two very different types of people that are listening to Jesus that day. So Jesus told three stories with two different types of brothers. The younger brother, the prodigal, represented the tax collectors and the scribes. I mean, excuse me, and the sinners. The older brother, the good son, represented the Pharisees and scribes and the leaders of the Jewish religion. Verse 1 says it was the tax collectors and sinners that were there because they wanted to hear Jesus. The Pharisees and scribes were only there because they were angry with the sinners who come to listen to Jesus but would not come to listen to them. And Jesus not only taught them, he ate with them. And eating with someone in the Near East at that time was a big deal. It was a sign of acceptance. They were grumbling because they could not understand how a supposedly holy man like Jesus could possibly sit down and eat with sinners. Often when we hear this parable, the focus is on the Father, who is so full of love and compassion that he is able to forgive the younger brother when he repents. And that's all true. But the target of the story is not really the sinning brother or the father. It's the leaders of the church, the religious people, the men that everyone is to look up to and honor, the ones that do everything the Bible, in this case the Old Testament, tells them to do. 
the ones that follow all the rules, keep all the customs, look good in public, and attempt to make everyone else do the same. Luke 16, 14, and 15, the Pharisees were lovers of money, heard all, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Jesus is telling them that they may be impressing people, but God knows their heart, and they don't impress him. He is pointing out their spiritual blindness and self-righteousness and how they are destroying their own souls and the souls of those that listen to them. Matthew 15, speaking about the Pharisees, Jesus tells his disciples, let them alone. They are blind guides, and if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. We see over and over in the New Testament where Jesus has an encounter with a sinner and religious, or pe religious people are there listening also. A few examples that you will likely be familiar with. Luke 7, uh, Simon the Pharisee is offended that, quote, a sinful woman was washing, washing Jesus' feet with an expensive ointment and drying his feet with her hair. Luke 19, Zacchaeus, the tax collector, joyfully receives Jesus. And the onlookers, the Jewish leaders, grumble when Jesus went to his house to eat. In Matthew 21, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. Matthew 23, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Keep in mind that Jesus knew who, Jesus knows everyone's heart. He knew that the Pharisees in the audience that he was speaking to would soon be part of the religious leadership that will turn him over to the Roman authorities to be executed. Yet unlike the verses we just read where Jesus was condemning the Pharisees in this parable, even though he's speaking to his enemies, he continues his mission to seek the lost by loving them into his kingdom. Jesus not only loves the fun-loving people like the younger brother, who think they don't need him, but also the hardened religious people like the older brother that are sure they don't need him. This parable shows us that salvation is more than repenting from our long list of sins, like the younger brother did. It is true, but it's much more than that. If we use the list method, what about the older brother? He said that he never disobeyed and the father never disagreed with him. We would have little to or nothing, he would have little or nothing on his list of offenses. When he came to following the rules, he could check all the boxes. Now, obviously, the parable is not saying that the older brother sinless, so don't take that. When the Pharisees sinned, they were their own worst enemies. They may have felt terrible and punished themselves, but in the end, they were still older brothers still thanking God that they were not like the other sinners. However, their repentance didn't get to the heart of the problem. Pride in his rule following, good deeds, and keeping of the law 
is what kept the older brother out of the salvation celebration of his younger brother when he came home. He was self-righteous. In his mind, because he was so good, God had to let him into heaven. He was trying to control God with his goodness. Yes, we need to repent of the wrongs we do, but we may also need to repent for the reasons we follow the rules and do what we think is right. Are we trying to impress God so he owes us? Is this our way of controlling God? The answer to the question that we posed earlier about whose responsibility it is to search for the lost brother, I would like to read a story from the book that Chris recommended, The Prodigal God. Edmund Clowney recounts the true story of a young man who was a U.S. soldier missing in action during the Vietnam War. When the soldier could get no word of him through any official channels, the older son flew to Vietnam and, risking his life, searched the jungles and the battlefields for his lost brother. It's said that despite the danger, he was never hurt, because those on both sides had heard of his dedication and respected his quest. Some of them called him simply the brother. If this parable had a true, loving, older brother, he would have gone looking for his younger brother rather than being angry that he had returned. Instead, Jesus chose to use a pharisaical brother in the parable. Jesus could have told the story using a true, loving, older brother, one that was willing to pay the ultimate cost, but he didn't. The younger brother's reinstatement of the family was free to him, but it cost the older brother plenty. Possibly this is why the older brother was so angry. Remember, all the remaining estate belonged to the older brother, not the father. Those of us who have put our faith in Jesus and not ourselves have a true, loving older brother one that paid for our sins on the cross. I titled this sermon, The Other Brother. When I did that a month ago, it was not the, it was not the one mentioned in the Bible, in the parable. The true other brother is Jesus, the one who sacrificed everything because of his love for us. If we insist on our own self-righteousness, Jesus can't save us. But when we admit that we are totally lost without Jesus, he can save us. In the Prodigal God book I mentioned earlier, Tim Keller contrasts what seems to happen in many of our churches today with the fact that Jesus' teachings seem to attract the non-religious people while offending the Bible-believing religious people. He is saying that the local church today tends to draw, quote, conservative, buttoned-down, moralistic people while the licentious, liberated, broken, and marginalized avoid the church. He says that, quote, if our churches aren't appealing to younger brother types, they may be more full of elder brother types than we'd like to think. The homepage on Pastor Keller's website says, the gospel says you are more sinful and flawed than you ever dared believe, but more accepted and loved than you ever dared hope. Let me read that to you again. It, it really hit me. The gospel says you are more sinful and flawed than you ever dared believe, but more accepted and loved than you ever dared hope. Amen. 
In Luke 7, Jesus continues the story of the sinful woman and Simon, saying, Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. If we are forgiven little, it may be because we don't think we have much to be forgiven for. To me, it seems more spiritually dangerous to be an older brother type than it does to be a younger brother type. The younger brother type knows he's a sinner and needs God. The older brother type doesn't see anything wrong with his life and therefore doesn't need God. It's like if you know you're sick, you go to the doctor. If you don't believe you're sick, you don't go to the doctor and you just may die. How would you like to be the younger brother type living with an older brother type that thinks he or she does nothing wrong and just can't possibly measure up? And you just can't possibly measure up. Maybe you grew up in a home where you were one of these siblings, the older or the younger. Maybe you are the older brother type. Maybe you're part of the reason the younger brother wanted to leave home. How would you like to be a younger brother in a church with a lot of older brother attitudes, constantly feeling condemned for not measuring up, for not being good enough? Maybe that's part of the reason younger brother types feel unwelcomed in many churches. Romans 5.8 says that God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 4.19 says, we love because he first loved us. As I've been thinking about the relationship between the Pharisees and the scribes and the tax collectors and sinners, between the older and younger brothers types, I would like to end this story that I heard many years ago. It's possible I heard it here, so you may have heard it also. The story goes something like this. During a church service, a young man walks in late. He's dirty. He smells. His hair and beard are a total mess. He looks around for a seat, and when he doesn't find one, he starts to walk down the center aisle while the pastor is preaching. And you know some people are thinking, I hope he doesn't sit by me. The young man sits on... The young man sits on the floor in front of the pastor. There is a moment of embarrassed silence. Then an old man, nicely dressed, with his cane, gets up out of his seat and slowly walks down the aisle. and sits on the floor beside the young man. I want my life to be that old man. Our application point, I am sorry. Our application point, um, let's spend time in prayer this week examining our hearts. See if we have a tendency toward a younger or older brother then let's repent of our shortcomings to the God who saves us. We're all sinners in need of a Savior. Please stand with me. Um, we will pray, and then you can be dismissed after the last song. If you would like prayer, come forward or grab somebody next to you and pray with them.
for today. I thank you that you are on the throne and you are in the business of saving sinners. Whether we're the younger brother type or the older brother type, Jesus, we all need you. I pray that everything that was said today brings glory to your name. Lord, we need to make much of you. We would be absolutely nothing without you. Lord, I pray for Rebecca and her desire for admissions. Lord Jesus, help her with the funds that she needs. Watch over and protect her while she's out on the field. And Lord, we pray for protection for the crew that's going to be here tomorrow working on this place. Keep them safe, I pray. Go with us as we um, go out into a new week that you have ordained for us. Be with Chris and family as they come home this week. Lord, we lift the, all these things up to you for your praise and your glory. In your name, amen.